Good morning, everyone. Pleasure to be with you all again this morning as we continue our study through the book of Joshua, really coming to the end of this first section, which sets up everything else we will be studying. Well, as matches read, in these opening verses, you find this command given three times. Three different times, God repeats this basic charge to Joshua to be strong and courageous. The question we're trying to answer this morning is, what does that mean? How do you define strength? What does that really even look like? It's very important that we are careful in how we answer this question because strength in particular is something that our culture tends to misunderstand a great deal. Think, for instance, of one of the extreme versions of this when it comes to the supposed world's strongest man competitions. Now, I'm just going to blindly assume that you all spent hours of your childhood watching these competitions, just like I did, just like every God-fearing kid does. But just in case you haven't witnessed these bizarre competitions, I'll try to paint you this basic picture. In the world's strongest man competitions, you have these competitors who are themselves larger than life in every way imaginable. They're loud as they scream through the competitions. They stomp around as they attempt to intimidate their competitors. And as they seek to intimidate the competitors, they, of course, engage in competitions and events that are equally bizarre and so absurd. These individuals are pitted against each other to see who can pull an airplane with a rope, who can pull a semi-truck with a chain, who can lift large round boulders and put them onto high-top tables. It's odd, to say the least, but pretty entertaining, especially to a little kid, as I was. And while each of these competitions, of course, establishes and demonstrates a certain level of strength, I think all of us understand that it's a strength that is entirely foreign to all of us. And it's a strength that, let's face it, is a little pointless, if not entirely worthless, when it comes to everyday activities. For unless you have a lot of large boulders in your yard, or if you are pinned beneath a car and you need to have the strength to deadlift that vehicle, none of these competitions, none of that supposed strength is really going to help you on a regular basis. We understand that, and so we would therefore understand that to be strong does not mean you need to be one of the world's strongest individuals. Yet while we understand that, I hope we understand that, many Christians carry a similarly childish and naive understanding of what strength looks like spiritually. In the same way that the world's strongest man competitions reserves the word strong for only these few select individuals that are able to accomplish ridiculous tasks, at times as believers, we reserve this type of language only to describe those people that we ourselves view as larger than life, don't we? For what images come to your mind when you think of people who are truly strong and courageous in the faith? I mean, if you're like me and like a lot of believers, I think our minds go to heroes of the faith. We think of people like Samson, who was both genuinely physically strong, but also was used by God to do incredible things, great tasks that you learn about in children's church. You think of Moses leading the people out of Egypt through miraculous signs and wonders. You think of David killing Goliath. Again, great physical strength, great bravery. Perhaps you go to the New Testament and you think of the apostles who who were willing to sacrifice their lives. That's strength. That's what it means to be courageous. Or You may even go throughout church history and see the countless men and women who have paid that ultimate price. This time of year, we are right to think of of the great reformers of the faith. 
people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, individuals who made significant changes when it came to how the world understood church, how the world understood faith, and, and it is on their shoulders that we still stand today. Unfortunately for many of us, we, we reserve strength and we think of specifically these outsiders as that which really uh, give us the picture of what this means. The danger of that, is, of course, is that while those tasks are great, the fact of the matter is, is that we're not called to those tasks. And while they did great things in their own day, in the days of the Bible, in the days of church history, well, our lives aren't going to look like that. And so on an everyday basis, even their strength might seem to, to fall short. It doesn't really help us day in and day out. And as a result, as we come to a text like the book of Joshua, chapter 1, specifically verse 9, we can read it in an overly distant manner. We can see it as a call only given to Joshua, a call marked by self-confidence, by physical strength and courage. And we can walk away from a book like Joshua thinking, good for Joshua, but, but what am I supposed to do? What's my calling? Well, by the grace of God, and thankfully for us as we look at Joshua 1 today, we can understand that strength isn't outside of us. It's not a foreign concept. It's not only reserved for those heroes of the faith. It's a calling given to all of you who are believers. And thankfully, by the grace of God, it's a strength that's not marked by just sheer-willed self-confidence, but it's defined by an appreciation of our weakness and struggles. It's lived out in the midst of a very specific call, a very specific task God has set before us. And it's lived out, again, not in a dependence upon self, but a constant awareness of where our source of power ultimately comes from. That is our constant, unchanging point of assurance and confidence, which is God himself. It's only then when we understand this that we can appreciate what true strength looks like and how we can then, therefore, even in the mundane activities of everyday life here in Cape Girardeau and Jackson, we too can be strong. We too can be courageous if God so wills it. With that being said, let's open our time in prayer and we'll dig into Joshua 1, 1 through 9. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for today. God, we come to a book like Joshua and again, we, we pray that, that you might be pleased in all that we say this morning. God, we thank you for examples like Joshua. For while he was certainly used to accomplish great tasks, miraculous tasks, there's nothing about Joshua that really sets him, uh, himself up to be some larger-than-life figure, for he is he's an average guy. And we thank you for that example. God, as we look at this text today, we pray that we do not walk away with a newfound appreciation of Joshua. But no, we pray we walk away with a growing awareness and appreciation of you, of your power, of your strength. And God, we ask that every day as we live our lives, we do not seek to live it out based off our own strength. That we not seek to prove ourselves as somehow worthy in and of ourselves, God. But that daily we learn to depend on all the more upon you, knowing it is your power that is unsearchable, is your faithfulness that is unchanging, is your strength that allows us, that enables us to do that which you've put before us, God. Use us in that way. God, bless our time now, we pray. Remove all distractions from us. I pray for any unbeliever who is here, God, as no doubt there are many I pray they might be humbled by the text today. I pray they might see you, see your wrath, but also see your offer of grace. And might they find that grace in Jesus today. 
We love you so much and praise you in Jesus Christ. And we ask these things. Amen. Well, as we begin discussing the really definition, this concept of true strength, we begin perhaps in the most surprising element. That is in a recognition of our genuine struggle, which is another way to say a recognition of our own weakness. It is unavoidable. That weakness, that struggle is hinted at multiple times throughout these first nine verses. Namely, it's found in the fact that God has to tell Joshua three times, three times, be strong and courageous, verse 6. Be strong and very courageous, verse 7. And finally in verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous, do not tremble, or be dismayed. Now this perhaps goes without saying for many of us in here, but why on earth would God need to encourage Joshua to not be dismayed? not be troubled. I mean, isn't Joshua fit for the job? Is he not confident and competent? Well, certainly there's much that is praiseworthy about Joshua, but we understand that Joshua faces a task that in and of himself, he falls woefully short. He's in every way inadequate, for he has a long list of reasons why he should be scared both in terms of a fear of man and what he faces externally, but also in terms of of spiritually, his fear of God and the responsibilities he has to carry out before that God. We do not have time to to exhaust all these reasons for concern Joshua would have had, but just consider a number of things that, that Pastor Josh has highlighted in our time in Joshua so far. Consider, for instance, the language of Joshua chapter 1, verse 2. There, as God begins speaking to Joshua, what is the first thing he reminds Joshua of? Well, in verse 2, we read, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, you arise, you go. You, Joshua, take his place. Now, I don't know how much you've read the Old Testament, but this Moses guy is a pretty big deal, pretty important figure. And if you're asked to replace anyone, you never want to be the guy to replace that guy. He's the guy that took the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt. He's the guy that God used to intimidate Pharaoh, to part the Red Sea, to kill massive soldier, massive number of soldiers in the Egyptian army. He's the man that while he failed in times, of course, is still viewed as a hero. Even today in our own culture, many people, believers and unbelievers alike, they know who Moses is. They don't know who Joshua is. Moses was significant. Moses was used in miraculous ways. Moses accomplished great tasks. Joshua understood that firsthand. And he would therefore have every reason to maybe feel a little self-conscious about his abilities. Not only that, but you add to it the fear of of the Hebrew people themselves, for let's face it, if you're given a team to lead into victory, you don't want to be the coach of the Bad News Bears here. Well, that's kind of Israel, isn't it? This isn't a great group of people to lead. They were slaves and now freed. You would think they would be really grateful for that, ready to do whatever coach says, but they've proven time and time again that they're far from that. They fail every attempt given. They constantly question Moses. The second they're out of Egypt, they're wanting to go back to Egypt. The second they're miraculously given food or water, they're complaining about the menu. There's nothing you can do as the leader of the Hebrew people, it seems, to satisfy the Hebrew people. And so if you're given this charge to lead these people, well, quite, quite frankly, 
you'd have every reason to be concerned for who could be successful in leading such a ragtag group of figures. Yet again, that's the call of Joshua. All that would be plenty to intimidate Joshua. But then, on top of that, of course, you throw in the type of people Joshua is facing in the promised land. For Joshua is not coasting into this land that is now free for rent. No, Joshua is entering into a land, yes, that's filled with milk and honey, but also filled with giants, giants who want to kill you and everyone you've brought with you. This isn't a metaphorical battle that Joshua is facing. It's a very real battle with very real weapons against very real, very scary soldiers who are defending their home turf. From a worldly sense, it would make no sense for Joshua to be confident in this moment. In fact, the Hebrew people themselves demonstrated that, didn't they? For when they were confronted with the reality of those giants back in Numbers, they responded quite logically. They were terrified. They weren't up to the task. Quite frankly, no one would be left to themselves. So yet again, out of this fear of man, Joshua had many reasons to, to feel weak, to waver. When you add to that the, the spiritual weight of this calling, you can only imagine how difficult it must have been, and, and that weight would have been significant. Pastor Josh last week went over this discussion of how Joshua was called to lead according to the law. Everything Joshua did was supposed to be according to the law, according to the word of God. Now there's an element of that that is genuinely encouraging. But if you're Joshua, you also have the very real understanding of what happens to you as a leader when you fail to do that. For he just has to look back to Moses, that great leader, that great hero, that man that was used to do great things. And yet when that great hero failed to uphold the word of God and how he corrected the people and how he provided for the people, what happened to Moses? He was banned from the promised land. He was done. Joshua saw that. Like so many leaders, like every king in the Old Testament, Joshua was given this very clear understanding that success would come as a result or in part because they did it God's way. And if they failed to do that well, well, there'd be very serious consequences. In other words, Joshua had constant reasons to be fearful. He had a, a limitless list before him of why he should feel inadequate, why he should tremble, why he should just turn around and head back. And it was in that vulnerable, weak position that Joshua found himself in Joshua chapter 1. And while our circumstances are by no means the same as that of Joshua, the fact of the matter is that the Bible is, is never shy about acknowledging the reality of our weaknesses, the reality of the struggles that all of the people of God face. At no point in time are the people of God called and given some false sense of assurance that, hey, it's all going to be easy now. Hey, it's smooth sailing from here on out. No, God goes out of his way to remind his people of their suffering, of the difficulties that their lives will now be filled with. The story of the Exodus is a great example of that. For upon coming out of Egypt, where are they led to first? Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, what are they confronted with? The holiness of God. And they are terrified, and rightly so. Because for the first time, they're seeing his holiness. They're seeing how otherworldly he is. They're seeing how fallen and how sinful they are. And they know that this is not a God to be trifled with. We, of course, do not tremble in the same way before God in the sense that we're afraid of his punishment if we're his believers. But the New Testament 
gives similar realistic understanding of the fact that God is holy, therefore we are to be holy. First Peter referenced that in his opening. If we understand that our salvation has been bought by the blood of Jesus, well, we better make sure that we take this seriously. So we too feel that fear of man around us. We too feel the, the understanding, the weightiness of our call. And we too are left then, just like every other man, woman, and child in the history of the church, with an understanding that, man, this, this world is hard. That this world is full of suffering. That just like the readers of 1 Peter, we face real fiery ordeals. Just like the readers of Romans, our lives are marked with suffering. And at times it can feel as if we are living a life of constant defeat, of constant failures, constant pressure, unending disappointment. And in the midst of that weakness, in the midst of that struggle, we can feel overwhelmed. After all, how can you not? when you really come to grips with the expectations of this life, when you really come to grips with how much is on your shoulders at times, how, how, can you not quietly feel, how can you not feel just defeated entirely? Unfortunately, many people at that point in time are crushed beneath the weight of those expectations. Various seasons in our life, we feel overwhelmed by the weakness and even ashamed of the fact that we find this life to be difficult. We feel as if a truly strong faith requires us to just ignore our struggles, ignore our weakness, ignore the pain we suffer from. Yet as we continue on in our text, we see that that's not where the strength of Joshua lies. No, it's only when Joshua appreciated and understood the weight of that struggle, that he could then appreciate the specific call that God was giving him. And so, too, believer, it's only when we have a healthy appreciation of how fallen we are, how weak we are, how, how much pain we suffer, that we can really appreciate and hone in on what our calling is from God, what that looks like. To that end, we see our second point, as we're reminded through this threefold refrain, not just of Joshua's struggle, but of his very specific call. Once again, we read in verse 9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord of your God is with you wherever you go. The calling here again, this threefold calling, is to be strong and courageous. And while we do not need to dwell here long, it is important to appreciate what this language actually means. For if you're not careful, you might be tempted to think that, that maybe Joshua is being commanded to deadlift a car in the wilderness. That would make for a very different book. That's not what God is saying, of course, is it? No, the strength and courage that God is speaking of are two characteristics that are very much interrelated. In fact, many people believe these words are in essence saying the same thing. The meaning of this strength, the definition of this courage, is similar to that of, of being perseverant, uh, similar to that of perseverance. To be strong is to persevere. To live with courage is to live with resolve. Meaning, when God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, he's saying, keep going forward. Do that which I have called you to do, Joshua. That is strength. That is courage. But of course, the question in that is, well, what is he being called to do? What, 
What tasks, what purposes has God set before him? For again, as we already mentioned, Joshua has faced a great deal of, of suffering. Joshua has, no doubt, numerous questions in his, in his own mind. And so one might perhaps wrongly assume that, that Joshua's life is wide open, that there's no telling what he's expected to do. But quite the opposite is actually true when we look at the text. For I think Joshua would have understood very specifically what God was telling him to do, very specifically what his task was. You see that task spoken of already in the text that we've read, haven't you? For again, if you look back at verse 1 all the way through verse 9, what exactly is the task God has given Joshua? Well, verse 2 says, Cross this Jordan, you and all the people, to the land which I am giving to them and the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given them to you just as I spoke to Moses. For the from the wilderness in this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea, towards the setting of the sun will be your territory. You jump ahead to verse 7. What's the task? The task is to do everything according to the word of God. The point here in this text is that God was not mysterious in the calling he had given to Joshua. Joshua was not left in the dark when it came to the task set before him. That task or those tasks were conquer the land, drive out the inhabitants, and then divide that land up amongst the tribes. This task is quite clear, not just from Joshua 1, mind you, but it's made, been made quite clear elsewhere as well in Joshua's life. A key to understanding that is, is understanding the significance of this threefold command in Joshua 1. You see, God is not just randomly repeating the same thing over and over again. No, even in speaking this command three times, God is signaling to Joshua, you've heard this before. You've heard this threefold command, this clear task already. You've heard it specifically back in Deuteronomy chapter 31. And so if you would, for the sake of understanding, turn back a few pages there to Deuteronomy 31. And you see what I believe God is referencing in this threefold speech. For there in Deuteronomy chapter 31, you find that great hero Moses giving his last counsel, his last speech before the Israelites, and specifically before Joshua. And as you read through Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses again makes it abundantly clear what the Israelites are supposed to do and more importantly, what Joshua is supposed to do for the Israelites. You pick it up, say in verse 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 31. Moses there speaking says, It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you. You will dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them just as he did to Sion at Og, the kings of Amorites, to their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will deliver them up before you. You shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Verse 7 again, Moses called to Joshua, said to him in the sight of Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall give it to them as an inheritance. Jump ahead to verse 23. He commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and will be with you. Read through a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 31 then, and you see 
Be strong and courageous isn't just some cliche term that Moses is throwing out, nor is God just throwing out on Joshua 1. It's a phrase that's being used with specific reference to the specific tasks that have been given specifically to Joshua. They are told to be strong and courageous for the purpose of entering into the land, for the purpose of conquering the land, for the purpose of dividing it up just as Moses had commanded them. And just as God had commanded Moses. When Joshua then was being told to persevere, to be courageous, he in essence was being reminded, the plan is clear, Joshua. You know exactly what my expectations are for you. You have been given your specific job description. Now do it. Fulfill that task. And in so doing, you will prove yourself as strong, as courageous, as having that spirit of perseverance, which is essential. The particularity of that calling is so important to understand. For it reminds us that when we are told to be strong and courageous, it's never just for some vague, undefined purpose. No, God always has the specific task in mind that he's given us. And it should perhaps not come as a surprise to you then that when you read throughout the rest of Scripture, you'll find the same language used for other specific tasks. At times, the tasks are similar to Joshua. And so if you read a passage like 2 Chronicles 32, you have this command to be strong and courageous in the face of the Assyrians, something not entirely unlike what Joshua faces. But then you read other passages, and you see this language used in very different circumstances. Consider this language in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 9 through 10. David here speaking to his son Solomon says this, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. If you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and act. Well, that last phrase almost seems out of place, doesn't it? Because what's, what's the task set before Solomon? Is it winning a war? Is it overcoming some giants in a foreign land? No. It's building a building. It's pursuing God and following the blueprints that have been handed down. David said, if you're going to follow this task, well, you need to be strong, Solomon. You need to be courageous. You need to persevere and not go off track. There, then the strength for, for Solomon is, is different, but it's the same. It's the same call to persevere. It's a different task. Same type of analogy, the same type of language is found throughout the Old Testament. Whether it's there in 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles... In the book of Ezra, chapter 10, the language is used to speak of reconciliation with God. The people are called to be strong and courageous to follow the law. Again, it seems a bit anticlimactic. And yet there it is. There's that language, strength, courage, defined not by defeating an enemy, but defined by basic obedience. You skip better in the New Testament, you see the same language used over and over again, not simply in reference to some grand, miraculous act, but to just basic obedience, basic faithfulness. It's used by Paul when speaking to Timothy about the language needed for successful ministry. 
It's the same type of language then that Paul applies not just to pastors, but to all of us as believers in 1 Corinthians 16. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 16, for I think again this captures how this language is so oftentimes used and how it speaks not to some grand calling necessarily, but to everyday basic obedience and the tasks set before us. For there in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, at the end of a book where Paul has spoken of numerous things, divisions in the church, struggles with, uh, with showing preference over Jews or Gentiles, showing preference for the wealthy over the poor, discussions of, of the gifts of the Spirit, and, and many more things. At the end of it all, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 to average everyday believers in Corinth. There in verse 13, 14. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Are these Corinthians called to defeat the Roman Empire? No. Are they called to do anything that we even know about in history? No, we know nothing of what else this church did. What are they called to do? They're called to stand firm in the faith in a culture that doesn't like them. They're called to use their gifts accordingly in a humble way. They're called to do it all with strength and courage. That's what Paul commands. That is what's essential for a faithful life of obedience. The same language that Joshua is given to defeat the promised land is the same language that the Israelites are given to defeat the Assyrians is the same language that Solomon is given to build a building is the same language that Paul gives to Timothy to be a pastor. It's the same language that's given to every single one of you as believers in your everyday basic routine. Even if you might have questions of of some grand activity that might lie before you in the years ahead, you can know with certainty exactly what God expects of you today. Which means what? Parents of young ones, be strong and courageous and raise your kids faithfully. Teach them the word. Discipline them in the Lord. Love them. Encourage them. And if you do that, you are strong. You are courageous. Employees at a workplace, be strong and courageous, which means be a faithful employee. Show up on time. Do the tasks that your boss has given you. If you do that, you are doing the will of God and you are proving yourself to be strong and courageous. Students in college, be strong and courageous. Show up to class. Do your work. Do it as you would unto the Lord. That is strength. That is courage. We do not need some grand vision to give us some great calling like that of Joshua to find strength, to find courage. It is defined in just everyday basic obedience. And there is such a precious point of encouragement in that, isn't it? There's something so beautiful in that language. For it's language that, again, both expresses God's value upon our daily work and also an understanding of how difficult that basic calling can be day in and day out. Because while our calling is not to defeat some foreign enemy, man, even these basic tasks are hard, aren't they? It's hard being a parent. College is hard. Working is hard. Faithfully following God in an increasingly godless world is hard. We were never told it was going to be easy. It's a life we've been given. And so we confidently move forward, knowing that it's the task God has set before us, and knowing that if we never even accomplish something grand and unique like Joshua, well, 
we still are counted in the eyes of God as courageous, for we are doing that which God has set before us. And even in the midst of that, even in the midst of appreciating that call to persevere, that call to be resolved, resolute in our everyday obedience, we understand that this calling in and of itself is not enough, is it? If we are just simply told every day, hey, I know it's hard, get over it. Well, that's, that's not helpful, is it? If you're simply told, hey, your calling's not harder than Joshua, so quit complaining. Well, okay, I guess that's true. But come on. And if we're just relying on that language, if we're just relying on that call to, hey, be better, be courageous, be stronger, inevitably we're going to fall back to point one. Inevitably, we're going to be overcome by our genuine struggles, by our genuine weakness. Inevitably, if we leave it up to ourselves, we will feel like miserable failures. Because we will be miserable failures if we leave it up to ourselves. That's what is so precious about the final point of what true strength is. About the final point that God highlights over and over and over again for his people, specifically here in Joshua. Look with me again, if you will, to Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. If this were being written in our own culture today, the end of that verse would sound very differently, wouldn't it? For people in our culture would anticipate God saying, be strong and courageous, because I know you can do it, Joshua. I know you have the skills for this task. So be strong, Joshua. You can do this. And sadly, even in our own everyday lives, in our own everyday tasks, we're prone to think in that language. I just need to do better. I just need to be better. I just need to work harder. That's not the encouragement God gives. Instead, what is the reason? Why is Joshua able to be confident? Why is Joshua able to be strong? Why will the Israelites succeed? What is the source of their assurance, of their strength. What's the presence of God, isn't it? Be strong, for I am with you. Be courageous, for I am with you. This is not the first time God has said this to Joshua. For before he even said that Joshua was to be strong and courageous earlier, what did he say to Joshua at the very beginning in verse 5? He says, no man will be able to stand before you in the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. You see, this is the bookend. It is the introduction to his call to be strong and courageous. It is the conclusion to the call to be strong and courageous. It's the reason why you can be strong and courageous. And when you begin to waver, it's the reason why you can become grounded again. For you know going into it and throughout, God is with you. Language of God here is so encouraging for Joshua, for he reminds him that he would be with him just as he was with Moses. What a precious promise that would have been to Joshua. For think of, think of the magnificent things Moses did when he was faithful to God. Think of the signs and wonders he performed by the hand of God in the story of the Exodus, think of how he was able to provide manna for the people, able to provide water from a rock by the hand of God. Think of how the presence of God meant Moses' success 
at least for so many of those years. And God says, Joshua, this is no different. Moses didn't succeed because Moses was great. Moses' success was enabled by God's presence. Joshua would succeed not because he was obedient. That would be part of it. Not because he was obedient. He wouldn't win military battles because of his military intelligence. Joshua would be obedient because God's presence enabled his obedience. Joshua would win military battles because God's presence would enable victory in military battles. In other words, the presence of God was everything. It defined Joshua's entire identity. It defined and guaranteed Joshua's success. You see that same promise, that same presence throughout the Old Testament and how precious it was to the people of God. We spoke of it already and how God was present with Moses. You read of that promise early in Exodus chapter 3 when God assures Moses, I will be with you, that's why you will leave. But you see that same presence of God with his people in the wilderness, don't you? For he's present with them in that, that pillar of fire and that cloud as a constant reminder, I am with you, I am leading you, I will not forsake you. You see the same precious language given earlier to the great patriarchs of the faith. People like Jacob and Isaac, in the midst of their own wanderings, in the midst of their own struggles, they are told over and over again, I am with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Time and time again, the lesson that God was striving to impress upon his people was that his presence was the key to everything. His presence was to be their confidence. His presence was to be their joy. His presence was to be that which allowed them to not waver, that which allowed them to remain faithful. And it was only when the people of God forgot that that those failures came. It was when Moses forgot about that presence that he disobeyed the word of God and he assumed he needed to take things into his own hands. It's when the people clamored and demanded a king because they failed to appreciate how the presence of God was enough that, that all those failures, all those weaknesses, all those seasons of struggles were introduced. It's only when they appreciated and savored that presence of God, relying upon that presence of God, that they found their victory. It would only be then that Joshua could understand what it means to be strong and courageous. Believers, we see how precious that is in the Old Testament. You see how miraculous that presence is when it's on display in the Old Testament. But do we appreciate how much, how much better we have it? Do we appreciate that that presence was not just simply something promised to some Old Testament saint like Joshua or Moses or David? Do we appreciate that it was the same promise given by Christ, who of course came to earth and was present, God with us. And before leaving this earth, before ascending, what are the, what's the language of Christ in the Great Commission? Well, many of you have it memorized, but in case you don't, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, actually we'll start in verse 16. The 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. It's so key to understand. Some still were struggling, and here's what Jesus says in response. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So oftentimes when we quote that passage, we stop at the command to make disciples. 
But if we stop at that command, there's no way we're going to be successful with fulfilling the command. The only reason why the apostles could be confident in this command is because of what Jesus promises after commanding it. Lo, I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Over and over again, it's that language, that promise, which enables obedience. You see the sort of motivation and encouragement that that gives to the apostles throughout the New Testament. You consider what it meant for, for Paul himself, who, because of the presence of God, could be confident that people like the Philippians would continue to be sanctified till the day of glory. Why? Because it's Jesus who's at work in them. It was why Paul, in the day of his execution in 2 Timothy, is able to be confident. Why? Because he says, Jesus will not leave me. Jesus is with me. And it's that same motivation that motivated not just Paul in accomplishing these great tasks, but that's given again to everyday believers as a reminder of why we can do this, why we can persevere. We saw it earlier in 1 Corinthians, but as we close, consider the language of Hebrews 13. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews 13. For again, we're given this precious encouragement, this encouragement that speaks to the root, the heart of courage, the root, the heart of strength, and what it means. There in Hebrews chapter 13, the author is bringing this long discussion to a close. Again, a discussion in which he's covered all sorts of difficult things. Hard sayings. And as he starts coming to a conclusion, he throws out a few more of these encouragements. There in verse 5, we'll pick it up in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 5. He says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? I, I treasure passages like this. Because again, it, it gives the most basic, practical application of this type of language. We do ourselves a disfavor, again, when we relegate, when we reserve the language of God's presence to accomplishing some great, mighty task. When we come to Hebrews chapter 13, we see it's that same language that frees us from greed. That allows us in the midst of just, man, everyday frustrations to still rejoice. To still be confident, to still remain faithful. Not because life's going to get easier, but because God is with us. And so why can you fulfill the task that God has given you, believer? Why can you be the student God's called you to be? Why can you be obedient to your parents' children? Why can you be better parents? Why can you be better employees? Why can you be faithful in all these things? Why can you share the gospel? Why can you know for certain that at the end of it all, God will look upon you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Because God's with you. Because God's with us. And it's only when we understand that presence it's only as we learn to daily lean more and more and more upon His power, His strength, His promises that we can confidently move forward in the task set before us. And then in so doing, we can prove ourselves to be strong and courageous as God has commanded. There are no doubt many, many of you here again who do not yet know Jesus. And I wish I could tell you that God is with you but he's not. The presence of God is reserved only for the people of God. And so I beg you, unbeliever, to place your faith in him. 
Because if you do not, you will die and you will suddenly be in the presence of a God who is wrathful. Who will damn you to hell. And so repent today, unbeliever. See your weakness. See your need of a Savior. Beg Him for forgiveness and know that if you simply put your faith in Him, He will save you. He will call you one of His own. He will adopt you. He will be with you. I pray you do that today. As always, if you have any questions about that, please seek us afterwards. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us remember and understand and appreciate that strength is not found in denying the reality of our struggle. That's not strength, that's, that's foolishness. That's dishonesty. Strength is not found in denying that we falter, that we grow tired. No, strength, as the prophet Isaiah speaks of, strength is found in acknowledging that we grow tired, we grow weary, but we press on because God is with us. And so, believer, let us vulnerably, honestly acknowledge our struggles, both for our sakes and the sakes of others. But as we acknowledge that struggle, let us remember the tasks that God has given us. Let us remember that call to daily obedience, daily faithfulness, daily living our lives in light of the word. And as we do that, let us rejoice in the fact that our success is not bound up in our own perfections, but it's bound up in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who will never leave us nor forsake us. And let us remember that someday that presence will not be something we merely read about in Scripture. Someday that presence will, will no longer be something we feel in passing because the Holy Spirit is with us. Someday that presence will be experienced face-to-face with Jesus Christ. And there is nothing sweeter than the believer's reunion with his Lord and Savior who has always been with us and will be with us for all of eternity. Let us pray that day comes soon, but as we wait that day, let us march on faithfully. And close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you again for the example of Joshua. We thank you for the honesty and the simplicity of these words. God, we recognize that Joshua's obedience was enabled only because you were with him. Just as Israel's success in the promised land was only enabled because of your presence. God, we praise you for that. We thank you for the fact that you have not called many who are strong, not many who are smart, not many who are impressive, but you have called us. And you've called us so that in our own weakness, your power is fully on display. God, we pray that we might see that power today. We pray that as the world looks upon us, it does not see a group of people that is eagerly attempting to prove ourselves, but they see a people who are eager to prove and point out your beauty, your power, and your glory, God. Break us of our pride, God. Cause us to remember that we are nothing apart from your presence, but cause us to rejoice in the fact that that presence is always with us. Be with us as we close our time in worship of you. Might we carry out this calling to the world in which you've given us, God. Might we daily strive to be strong and courageous in whatever circumstances you place us. It is in your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name, that we pray these things. Amen.